Easter, I am so sick of chocolate. Absolutely sick. If you offered me an Easter egg now, I would not. Well, I might take it, but I wouldn't eat it. So all the tolls. And welcome to my Way Thinking podcast, hosted by me, Lee Greeno, here live from the Man Cave every Monday, where we speak to extraordinary individuals. Individuals such as the brilliant Kevin Picard, who is on today. Now, Kevin is a coach, a fitness fanatic, uh, friends with Adam Peaty, you know, the world renowned swimmer, uh, among many other things. He's also a lot into children's coaching for fitness and exercise, and we also talk about the mental health side of that as well. So, you are going to love this chat. Now, remember, there's only four rules one no bullshitting, two no judging three no negativity and four have fun okay let's get on with it here's my interview with the brilliant kevin so welcome to my way of thinking and today we have a very special guest it is the one and only kevin Picard. kevin welcome well hey absolutely buzzing to be here thanks for inviting us on no problem at all. It's been a bit of a, a blustery one in the Midlands today um, and I've been rushing around and you pulled the uh, interview forward for me, which was very good of, you, of yourself. What have you been up to today? Anything interesting? Uh, well, I've just had a, a few days up at uh, the World Championship Trials up in the up in Yorkshire. So uh, I've kind of got back from that. My feet have touched the ground and I've got a few days to gather my thoughts, catch up on admin and uh, do a bit of podcasting. <laughs> but it, we'll get into all that anyway, because something is interesting. What you said there is, you know, you do all this, you do this sport and you're constantly on the go. And then when you come home, you're still on the go. You're still filling your, you know, you're <laughs> filling your diary up. And it's a bit like me. I'll moan to my wife and I'll say, oh, I need a couple of days rest. And those couple of days rest, I'd go insane if I weren't doing anything. Do you feel like that sometimes? <laughs> Yeah, I've got a mate who's a PT and we talk constantly about that sort of stuff. And actually, do you get to the point where you don't know how to sit still? And I'm like, I don't sit still unless I, you know, even occasionally like pre-COVID when you went on holiday and, you know, you're laying by the pool for about five minutes and then you're like, right, I need a book or I need to go for a walk or I need to do a swim or something. I can't sit still, but that's just, that's who I am. And I'd rather have it that way. I think, I think... Um... It's the same, maybe it's the same with sports, with creativity. It's almost exactly the same. You know, we'll go on holiday and you'll see these people lie by the pool for 12 hours. And me and my wife were there for half an hour. We're like, let's go somewhere. Let's do something. I just, I'll go insane. I can't, you know what I mean? It sends me mad. So uh, we're definitely, we're definitely the same that way, physically. And uh, I don't know about that fitness wise, but. (laughs) I'm sure we're cut from the same cloth in that sense. Yeah, yeah. So, first of all, whereabouts are so you're down in London? Whereabouts are you? Uh, so, yeah, just sitting outside the M25 in sunny Hertfordshire, uh, not far from Nebworth, where they do all the music festivals. So, a few uh, people have probably been to gigs there over the years. Maybe not in the last couple, but certainly go back in the day. There's been some amazing, you know, Oasis gigs and Red Hot Chili Peppers and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's a it's a cool place to live. There's, um, like I said to you, my son's just moved down there. And London has got a great energy when you're in the centre of it. And I go down there sometimes for film stuff. But I, I like to get away from it and just chill out. And I think there's a lot more people now living in areas like yourself where you've got a countryside, you know, you, yeah. you've got the, the nice settled uh, home life. But if you want to, you can shoot into London and, and get in the hustle and bustle. Is that, is that, that the way it is? Yeah, I mean, even like heading up to Sheffield the last few days, it was a train out of King's Cross and it was, you know, 20 minutes in and I've gone from walking through like a cornfield, you know, in the mornings, first thing going for like a morning walk to like by nine o'clock, you're in the middle of London and then again, you're back out into Yorkshire within a couple of hours. So I like it. It's a good balance. I love being able to go in, but I equally like being able to come back out again. Yeah. And tell me something interesting because I always ask my guests where they're living. Tell me something interesting that maybe I wouldn't know about around that area. Um, I mean, there's so much weird stuff. And again, it's probably the same with a lot of places. Over the last two years, you explore your local area. And uh, we can actually walk through from our house. It takes like a good hour, but you can walk through the fields and it comes out in Nebworth House where they actually do the festivals. Wow, um, yeah. But it's like a, a reserve. So there's deer in there. So you go for oh, a walk wow. and come through these trees and there's suddenly just like 50 stags just standing there looking at you. And wow. you're like, this is weird. And then you look at the field and you're like, ah, that's where Robbie Williams played. That's where Oasis played. So it's, yeah. such a, it's such an eclectic, weird 
kind of yeah. spectrum from like the most modern over the top music stuff all the way through to like nature at its best. So that's wow. no, a cool place to live and I certainly yeah. enjoy it. Do you, do you train a lot around there? So running, cycling, I mean, I, mean, I know you're a swimmer, but <laughs> does, I, 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 I try and run, uh, but I always find it's nice if you find a place like that where you, you, you know, everything's going on, but nothing's going on. If you know what I mean, do you, do you enjoy training? Yeah. Running? Yeah, and I'm I'm doing a marathon for charity in in the next few weeks, and um, for me it's been like it's been really interesting exploring like the local areas because once you get up to about five k of training, there's only so many times you can go around the field to do <laughs> yeah. that. So you kind of venture off into different towns and villages, and uh, no, it's been it's been really interesting, and I guess. I'm a very glass half full person. So coming out of the back of the pandemic, actually, I was like, wow, we actually live in an amazing area and there's so much to do here that perhaps you'd never have explored if we'd not been all kind of limited in what we could do yeah, over the last few years. Yeah, oh, brilliant stuff. So what, what I always talk about to my guests is whether they've got a career or a sport or you know they're in films or whatever it is, is where that spark came from. Because with some people, it's when they're at school, it's, you know, as soon as they were born <laughs> or someone bought them a bike when they were five years old. <laughs> but for some people, it's a little bit later on. Tell us a little bit about where, where sport came into your life and what sparked your interest in. I think it's a fascinating one for me because I never specifically set out to do sport. Um, I grew up by the coast. So I grew up down in sunny Hastings on the south coast in England. Um, and, you know, it was six weeks of the summer holidays you just got up every morning jumped on the bus down to the seafront and you spent it didn't matter whether it was raining sunny whatever you'd go and explore the beaches the country parks and just kind of grew up with quite an outdoor lifestyle and then I was quite fortunate I went through the education system when sports colleges were still a thing and we had one in our local town so I remember getting to like whatever it is, nine, 10, and you go and visit the secondary schools and go and see like two or three and then going into this sports college and they were like, we do sport every day. And then every day before school at lunchtime and after school, there's optional sport. And I was like, I'm coming here uh, because it was just, it was amazing. And again, it's, it's changed a lot now, but actually I think, you know, by the time I was even 15, 16, I'd probably tried 15, 20 different sports um, and, and I'd realized like actually, I, I really enjoy this perhaps hadn't realized that would evolve into a career but was very much like sport is my thing and this is what I want to spend my time doing so yeah that was kind of it in the early days and I think it was quite a, again a strange situation for me where I grew up there was a girl in my swim team and then a guy that I went to school with who both went to the Olympics so again it was you didn't see it as an inaccessible thing you know uh, I don't know if you remember Gareth Barry professional footballer he was mm. a few years above me at our school so all of these things that a lot of places perhaps people think of, that's not possible, I'd never be able to do that. It was on my doorstep. And I'm not saying the opportunities were there, like handed to me, but there was certainly a, an environment where you just thought, well, why not? Um, and <laughs> wait until I get a bit older to find out I was hopeless at football and kind of <laughs> was, a, was an all right swimmer, but not an amazing one. I've spoke that what you're saying there is quite interesting in that because I was thinking about this before the interview, I was thinking, when I was at school, I uh, tried lots of sports, tried football. I was rubbish at most of them. Uh, you always had the good kids that were great at it. You know, I was always mediocre or not that bothered. Didn't really enjoy school. And then as I got older, I got into the gym um, and I got into sport. I've, I've always been one that will pick lots of different sports and be average at them or, or pretty good but never get completely, you know, focused on it and, and give everything to it. But I do think school is a big thing because I think they let me down a little bit. Well, they did, probably didn't let me down, but there weren't the good coaches, the interesting, you know, our PE teacher was always smoking and getting pissed and, <laughs> you know, and it makes such a difference, doesn't it? I think school is so important when you get their mentors or, coaches or teachers I suppose later on you get the real coaches that are going to work with you you know potentially for years and years but at school and the fact that you knew people that have gone the Olympics and places like that we never you know from my school we never heard anything like that so it's so important isn't it it is and I think also for me there's there's an element of luck to it that plays a huge part. You know, if you happen to grow, and I was fortunate enough to grow up in a town where that was an opportunity. If I'd have grown up two towns along from me, maybe my life would have been completely different. But I think the, 
the aspirational value of sport cannot be underestimated. And I think, you know, when I was a kid, you know, one of my early, early sporting memories, I guess, you know, when more and more people were watching sport on TV was, you know, the 99 European Cup final. And I wasn't crazy into football, but I still remember watching that game. I remember watching in 98 at the World Cup, you know, Michael Owen doing that run round a few players against Argentina. Wow. I, again, it's, it's strange that those moments stick out, but then... You know, I was sitting down, I had a conversation with one of the 2003 Rugby World Cup team uh, recently. And I said, I was at college and I remember watching that game and going absolutely mad watching <laughs> that. And I, I wasn't a huge rugby person, but it was the, it was that moment of sport of just bringing people together and celebrating. And, you know, we go back to like, obviously some of the challenges of the pandemic in the last couple of years, both the last World Cup and the last European Cup, the country's really kind of come together oh, yeah. behind the England team. And actually, it's like, yeah, sport does bring people together. And it's not about the sport. It's what sport does for everything else. And I think that was something that we saw at London Olympics. You know, we'll see it this summer with the Commonwealth Games. And I think it's, you know, people argue, you know, what's the value of sport? And, you know, what's the tangible value? And you're like, it's so many things that you almost can't measure because they go way beyond the world of sport. Uh, I, I think it's awesome. Yeah, it's so powerful. I mean, I, I love sport. I love every sport. But, you know, football, I've always been keen on football. I was pretty rubbish at it. And what amazes me is, you know, media is so negative. It's very negative. It's so difficult at the minute when you're looking at the news and what's going on in Ukraine and things like that. But regardless of what's happening, if the England team start to do well, there's a whole positive buzz around the country. Everybody, even people that don't even like football, they ha eventually they have to watch it or they'll talk about it. And everybody's talking. And, and that's the power, isn't it? You know, these 11 players all over the country, there's just a massive energy. It's, it's pretty special, isn't it? It really is. And I think the other thing that I've noticed through sport is, you know, you ask every kid, what do you want to do when you're older? If they've got any inkling in sport, you know, I want to be a professional footballer, I want to go to the <laughs> yeah. Olympics and whatever it is. But actually, and I do a hell of a lot of parent talks, you know, schools and universities and on tours and stuff. And actually, when you dig down into that, what they're saying is, I aspire to do something great and sport inspires me to do that. And I think, you know, you talk to a lot of people who have gone on and done incredible things in their life. They often have that spark that came years before that and they never... You know, you didn't have somebody when they were eight or nine thinking they were going to found an incredible company or go on and do an amazing physical achievement or go to space or, you know, whatever it is. But what it does was it lights that kind of urgency and that desire to move forwards and do something. And I think too often people often lose that. And actually, there's nothing wrong with saying, I want to be a professional footballer, applying yourself incredibly, then taking all those skills and behaviors if you don't make it and moving that into another area and then becoming unbelievably successful at that. And I think, again, sport has a huge capacity for that that we don't really sell. You know, we look at the scores and we look at the leagues and we look at rankings. But actually, if you look at what sport does, especially when you see, you know, watch shows like I'm a Celeb and stuff like that, and they talk about that PE teacher or that school teacher, you know, before Christmas they had Adele, uh, did a, a night with on uh, ITV, I think it was. And they said to her, what was your moment and she said oh my English teacher when I was however old she yeah, was and yeah. they went well she, and they got her out on the stage and actually they'd brought her English teacher along that had sparked that when she was a 12 year old and I think most people have that moment when they're young where something happens that kind of captivates their interest it could be sport it could be anything but I think sport is so wide-reaching and especially with the range of sports you know, it doesn't matter who you are and what your skill set is. There is a sport out there that you can be good at. And I think that doesn't mean you're going to be the world champion. It just means you can engage in it and have a good time. And I think too often people lose the, lose the good time element of being involved mm. in sport and actually then lose all the other great benefits that come with it. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one about pressure because... Um, I remember many years, many years ago, um, I took my son football. He played football for a while, and and I remember the coach there. You know, we he would play football. Uh, he wasn't that good at it, um, and uh, the goalkeeper would kick it up front, and you know, and he'd try and score and miss, and, and everyone was encouraging. Um, but the it wasn't quite the same as, and then we went on holiday and, and we met this, this Dutch guy and he had his couple of kids there and, and we had a bit of a play with play football. And the difference was 
that when my son tried to score and he missed, we were encouraging him. But if he passed it back to the goalkeeper, the, the thing was, well, pass it back, go for it, you know, hit it. Or if you're a defender, you know, clear it. And there was that disappointment. Whereas what I noticed with these, these Dutch guys, they were passing it back. Uh, they, were, they weren't trying to score. They, they said that would come, that would automatically happen. And if it didn't, it didn't. They had a bit of a finesse about it. And I think that's one thing that's happened with the England team. And do you think that's happening in British sport now? Because I think years ago, parents could be, some parents could be very, put a lot of pressure on kids to, you know, score or be the best or, and if they didn't, they'd say, oh, well, well done. But in the back of their mind, they're thinking, oh, you didn't do. Whereas, I don't know, whether it's something that was European back then. Am I making sense? Yeah, and I think <clears throat> there's a few things that jump out to me. Like, one of the things that I've noticed over the years, if everyone wants to win, mm. if you go to an event, by, if, you, if that's your sole metric for a successful event, team, goal, whatever sport you're doing, in my sport is swimming. So there's eight people in a final. So if everyone wants to win, on paper, if that's your only metric, seven people fail every time. Mm. Now, if you're talking like of a batting average, you know, having like an 80-something percent failure rate is not going to be conducive to a great sporting experience. Mm. Whereas actually, if people learn how to enjoy and develop through the actual process, so let's go back to your football example, learning how to pass, control the ball, communicate, understand space, you know, just understand the rules and actually develop as a person in a much wider way, you know, then start thinking about, oh, I want to be a better footballer, right? Well, I might nail my nutrition, I'm going to do some work on my flexibility, and my mindset, all of those sorts of things what you tend to get is regardless of the performance outcome, you get a more well-rounded human being coming out of the other end. And actually that again is something that we lose when it's a win at all costs. And if you don't win, you're a failure. And I think, you know, even in my sport, there's what 50, 60,000 kids in this country, less than 2% make it to the national championships each year. Therefore, if our sole metric is you need to make the nationals, well, we're, we're a 98% group of failures. And that's of course not the case, but I think, that language can be quite dangerous if that's the sole metric. It's nothing wrong with saying we are here to win. But what I think the landscape is starting to change of how we win and how we get there, because ultimately, if you build a team of people who are really resilient, are really great at communicating, they've got a great skill set, they enjoy working hard, they look after their nutrition and their health and everything else, then actually out the other end pops a great group of people and if they win, that almost becomes like the Dutch guy was saying, a byproduct as opposed to the sole focus. And I think even if you look at the most successful like athletes on the planet, you know, go back to uh, Michael Phelps is in a swimming pool, or you go back to like some of the most amazing footballers we've ever seen. Actually, it's they've got to be in the best by doing all of the day-to-day -day process stuff really well. They didn't just obsess over the outcome. And I think too often that can become a really dangerous thing because then the speed bumps is what helps you get to those amazing things. But if your sole metric is winning, the speed bump might be the, the stop and then you just leave. And that's where I think we do lose a lot of kids because they think I've failed, I'm useless, I'm yeah. rubbish. It reflects on them as a person. It's difficult, isn't it? And I was speaking to someone the other day about parents because there's two sides to this. There's the parenting and there's the coaching. Now a coach, getting an amazing coach is the most important thing. It's your best friend. He'll be with you for years. You know, it is apps and, and they are trained to do that and they work on that. Whereas a parent, a parent's learning as they go along. You know, I spoke to someone who was on about a parent. They teach parents social media because they have no idea about a lot. Some have no idea about it and yet their kids are on it. And it's that, it's that sort of education for a parent, isn't it? That, they're learning as well as their child. So, you know, you're trying to get the best outcome. Is that where you come in a lot of the time is trying to educate the parents? Yeah. So I guess, I mean, I wear about 10 different hats, but my day job, <laughs> uh, my, in my day job, you know, one of the things we've done with working with a professional athlete is we've built an education platform that's integrated for parents and athletes. Um, now I, my day job's in swimming, but I do quite a lot of like consultancy work in other sports and actually it's the same language. Like at the end of the day, if you're encouraging positively an experience for a kid, it doesn't matter whether they're kicking a ball, diving in a pool or throwing a, you know, whatever it is. So I think that that's definitely a big aspect to education. And I think a level of empathy, because I think the, the empathy of a, a parent seeing a coach or a referee or their young person 
doing what they do but then actually the education piece around understanding it from their view um, like we were talking before we started recording and you know I interviewed a Premier League referee recently and when you actually listen to like their view on things and you see it and you're like wow that's incredible but I think too often it can be very one-dimensional in how we approach mm. supporting young people perhaps as parents how we view things because of our upbringing and our sporting experience and that's um that's really challenging but I think there's no excuse for it in the modern world now like you can access parent talks on YouTube you can you know sign up to these all these different platforms that exist and actually it's a lot easier to get it right than I think it was 10 years ago when perhaps it was just let's have a yeah. go and see what happens you know you know one of the things I'm thinking is uh where a kid's talented because I remember at school you know there was a talented footballer who's a mate you just knew he had it uh, but what about these kids that have got that, but they're deprived, maybe they're in poor circumstances, one parent, you know, deprived area, their parents are struggling to, you know, feed the kid and look after the kid, never mind put this pressure on. And I do feel, I don't know what, the, what, what we do as a country to help that. Is there a lot more support for that now? Because there's nothing worse <laughs> than wasted talent. If you know that child's talented, but, you know, his mum has got more important things to do. Is the support there now? Um, I think it's different from different sports because the barriers to entry and, say, horse riding might be different to, like, <laughs> yeah. dis distance running, for example. Yeah. Um, so I think different sports have their own quirks that mean that the pathway through is very different. But I think, you know, there's a hell of a lot of scholarships into different places that can really help with things, community grants, those sorts of things. I'm involved in a project that's piloting in Hertfordshire later this year. And that's looking at uh, people coming from deprived communities um, or underrepresented ethnic groups that actually don't get the support just because of the cultural norms, if you like, in their area of society. So I think there's there's stuff getting done en masse. Like if we look at the the biggest shift was probably the National Lottery back in like the late 90s. And you actually look at what that's done for elite sport. But the, the trickle-down approach is still reliant on money getting from the top to the bottom, which realistically after the last two years of what we've had, there's less money, uh, there's less people, uh, there's less actual staff that are in, you know, supporting teams and clubs and everything out there because there just isn't the, the size, if you like, of, uh, of sports budget that there was two, three, four years ago. So I think that there's, there's a few things coming together there, but I certainly feel like there's a lot more potential coming in the next probably three or four years because I think we're getting better at looking for talented people. Um, again, if we go back to the technology example, if you've got access to a phone that has internet access, you're already probably 10 times more advantaged, even if you're from a deprived background yeah. than you were 10 or 15 years ago, because you can now watch what an Olympian has for breakfast, how they train, you know, all of those sorts yeah. of things that perhaps you might just read about in a magazine or something. So I think it's the accessibility is better. It's in no way good. Um, and that's something that both in my day job, but also in some of the other work I do, I'm really passionate about because I feel like I was lucky. I was very, very lucky. I mean, both my parents worked, worked two jobs, full-time job and jobs around that. So I could do my sport and I'm here because of that. Like I wouldn't be here if I hadn't have had those sporting opportunities, when, especially through my teenage years before I got a full-time job and all those sorts of things. When, you know, if you're a parent and you've got multiple kids and you've got to put food on the table and, you know, talk about it at the moment, the last few yeah. weeks, energy bills have gone through the roof. Yeah. Like what, what gets squeezed out? Well, if it's a choice between putting food on the table or paying your subscription fees for your local sports team, it'll be the sports team that goes out the door. Yeah. And I think that's a real challenge, but it's not an insurmountable one, I don't think. Mm. Yeah, and it's like you say with technology. I remember years ago, and I'm not, I'm not going to say how old I am, but I had to go to the library to find out everything. Now, yeah. especially with uh, filmmaking, podcasting, anything like that that you're interested in, you know, I can learn everything I want on YouTube with a you know a couple of days. So it is it is a lot better, um, but it's still it's still a hurdle to climb, and I, and I suppose. It's just, it's spotting that talent, isn't it? It's trying to spot that talent. And I suppose um, it's, it's, it's doing that. What, um, so let's talk about, so obviously you got into sport and then for whatever reason, uh, it didn't work out or, you know, you, you, well, it did work out, but as, as far as professional sportsmen, you know, you decided not to do that. Um, but I know you have coached and worked with uh, Olympic winners and top top of the game sportsmen. What is 
what's the difference? What are these, you say 2%, you know, what's the difference between these, these 2% and all these many thousands? Because it, it always interests me. It's, is it dedication? Is it just everything? Is it life, you know, experience? Because, you know, it's such a specific, it, it's, I remember when I was a kid and I'd, I'd do martial arts and uh, my friends would say, oh, are you coming out Friday? And I'm like, martial arts are coming out. And I'd go out. Yeah, it's that dedication to say my life is swimming, and that and that is it. What what is it that makes someone that special? It's a great question, and I think you know there's probably some you know gurus, if you like, out there that will preach a very simple answer. But for me, everything I've learned, everything I've seen, there isn't a simple answer. You know, I've probably met Olympic champions from maybe six different sports now. And I would say none of them are the same. They all have their own quirks. And I think what I've found is really interesting is it's their human robustness that has allowed their sporting prowess to come to the fore. And I think, you know, my day job working with Adam Peaty, actually, I hear a lot of the stuff that he does now was actually the foundations for that were laid like 10 years ago. Yeah. And I think, I think that's a quote I got told probably maybe 20 years ago now when Michael Phelps was like a 15, 16 year old first breaking through on the scene. And his coach said, you'll behave like an Olympic champion long before you've got a medal around mm. your neck. Yeah. And I think now obviously from different sports, that's going to mean different things. But, you know, Damien Hughes talks a lot about success leaving clues. And actually, if you look at that, it's not hard to, to see that. If you look at what Cristiano, Cristiano Ronaldo does, at the end of a session, he's kicking for an extra half an hour. If you look yeah. at what Johnny Wilkinson does, it was the same thing. If you look at what Adam Peaty does and going above and beyond. Like, and the thing is, is, you then factor in genetics. You factor in the fortune of whether you've got parents and coaches that can support you. Your geography. You know, I was chatting to a friend, of my, a friend of mine that I've done some work with who made the Olympic team last summer. And actually, he was like, I was geographically challenged. I was like, what does that mean in English? And he went, I was born in the top of the Lake District. He said, <laughs> yeah. my, he's like, I had what I had. I was in the middle of nowhere. And he did an amazing job. And I think he's got two Olympic medals now. And he's still got a lot more to come. But actually, for his earlier part of his career, until he moved when he was in his late teenage years, that was what he had. Like, if you, you can't, you don't choose where you're born. And that's, that doesn't mean if you're born in the depths of Suffolk or out on the, you know, the East Coast or wherever it is that actually you can't access these things. All it's saying is that your opportunities at certain parts of your journey are going to be different to others. And I think that's where I get frustrated because you might get an elite athlete and then you get this, well, everyone should follow that path. And it's like, everyone is so unique. And yeah. you know, we were talking earlier about like the, the geographic differences in just the UK. Like if you grew up down in Sussex or in Kent or in London, you can't really have a conversation with someone who's born in the Highlands. You know, they're, on, they're talking a different language. And I think that that's when people talk about talent and what makes the difference. And there are so many variables. And I think one of the nicest ways I've ever had described to me was by one of the England women cricket coaches a few years ago and talked about having a mixing deck and actually that to get a tune to come out of it, you've got maybe 10 or 15 different channels that feed into that. But for every single person, where those dials sit on that channel is going to be different. And I think there are obviously some incredible common themes, you know, commitment, passion, love yeah. of the sport, yeah. all of those sorts of things. But there's too many other variables, you know, like if I, I genuinely believe like my boss, if he, if he'd have grown up 10 or 20 or 30 miles either side of where he grew up, the odds of him ending up in a club with a former Olympian who recognized the path that he was on and had the, I guess, empathy and like the personality to nurture that for a period of 10 years to get him to where he was. I mean, statistically, the odds are insane. So, but we could talk all day about that, like it's happened. So I think there is a very unique set of circumstances. But the thing I say to parents every time when they ask questions similar to that is, what you've got is what you've got. If you're born here, there or there, you know, you're tall, you're short, you're fast, you're slow twitch, whatever it is, like you've got what you've got. So I think the athletes that are the superstars, whatever they've uh, 
cards they've been dealt, they make the absolute best of them. And what that mentality does means that when they get eventually to the higher levels of the sport and they get it all laid on because they've got, you know, a national team or an academy or whatever it is, they fly because they've got the headroom to grow. And I think too often people are just in a race to the finish line at 12, 13, 14. And it's like, find me a 12 year old that's a professional athlete. You know, they want to have a peanut butter sandwich and go and hang out with their friends. They don't, they're, they're not in that place. So it takes yeah. time. And I think we're in a very unusual generation of everything yesterday. But actually, the process of becoming a great human being, an athlete, hasn't got any shorter. It's still a massive journey. And, yeah. yeah, I suppose it's it's like you say, all those little bits just slotting in at the right time, a bit of luck, you know, everything else, the hard work. You talk about Adam and, and he's just phenomenal. What do you think it is... I, you know him well. So to know him as a human, you know, I would guess, you know, you can talk to him, have a laugh with him. Is it putting that to one side and then sort of you've got a totally other type of Adam where he is focused, you know, with an inch of his life. But then the other side of that, which I was thinking about is, you say before, let's not t- say to kids, you know, you must win. But it's sort of double-edged sword because Adam, you know, we must wants to win maybe I'm wrong but mate wants to win so much he's that focused that other things you know we say well don't worry if you lose well I would guess when you're at the top of the game that's that's not you can't think like that would I be right in saying that so I think in ter- I mean, there's a few things there in terms of any elite athlete they'll be very aware of when they're on and when they're off and they understand that one relates to the other. If you don't switch off and relax and unwind, you can't then do the on to 110%. So I think that's reasonably consistent in all super elite athletes. But I think when it comes to people and like that winning mentality, I think it's, it's a slight difference around actually the, the fact that they, their desire to win is there, but you won't ever hear, or in my experience, you won't hear them obsess over the medal or the win. Mm. They obsess over every little detail to become a winner, if that makes sense. Yeah. So they become they become process obsessed because ultimately, if you've got a, let's say when he was 17, 18 and he started breaking through, if you'd said to him, you have to win gold and that was your approach ever as a parent or as a coach, all you're doing is you're increasing pressure. You're not actually showing them the way to get there. Um, and that would be like getting in a sat-nav and putting on like from my house to your house and it's a two-hour drive and for two hours it just went you're not there yet you're not there yet eventually (laughs) you're gonna go mad yeah yes whereas actually what a sat nav does is you get to the end of the road and it goes turn left Mm. and then you get to the next road and it says turn right and that's ultimately what great great athletes and their coaches and their parents get is actually that journey is understanding what the journey is. And some of it you won't know because you can't predict the future too far ahead. But actually, we've got a reasonable understanding of what it takes to be a great athlete. You've got to have some good nutrition, good psychology, good land training, good, you know, whatever sport it is you're doing. So let's do those things really, really well. And funnily enough, if you get all of those ingredients right, you're more likely to pop out the other end as a successful athlete. Whereas the old school approach, if you like, of just throw everything at them <laughs> yeah. as early as possible and yeah. hope they somehow find yeah. it to the top. It's like, I do think a lot of athletes have been broken by that system over yeah. the years. And, you know, you look at, well, let's not name specifics because we wouldn't want to be too controversial, but I'm sure there still are cultures that exist in certain countries around the world where that still happens. And actually, yeah. you, you hear x style of coaching and y style of coaching and you think can you imagine being an athlete in 2022 going through that that system you can't and yet it still happens so i think that it's a spectrum for sure and yeah and and i think so and the thing is as well um that's the worst way possible because what happens then is the athlete ends up hating the sport that they loved you know what i mean they they it's that's the worst thing that can happen but it happens Oh, definitely. And I think ultimately, if you look at people that are committing 35, 40 hours a week of their life to sport and all the associated activities, actually, you ain't doing that if you don't love it. Because Mm. if someone's offering you, and let's, let's pull it back to numbers, if someone's offering you 50 grand a year to go and do a job, nine to five, 
and someone's offering you exactly the same amount, but you get up at five o'clock in the morning and you do it for 49 weeks of the year and you're constantly tired and you don't have your social activities and you can't drink in season and all of those things that come with being a professional athlete. There's a lot of people who are wired in a way going, nah, it's not for me. And that's fine. Mm. Uh, and I think that's when you ask about what makes the difference, it's that one of the best lines I've heard that kind of summarized it was the the people that are the absolute best at what they do, do what's necessary when they don't want to do it. Mm. And that's the difference. Because you think of like, even us, like, let's go to the gym this week. How many times are you going to go? Five times. And then you wake up Monday with a bit of a headache because it was the rugby and a few beers on the Saturday. Oh, I'll, t- I'll go tomorrow. And by Friday, you've done twice. And it's, it's that kind of thing. Whereas I've watched athletes that broken, just completely run down. But on Monday, they're there. They turn up. Yeah. And I think that that is the difference. And that is quite, that's really hard yeah. to do. But it's quite a unique group of people that do it. Uh, that's why it's not for everyone. Yeah, it's a special kind of mindset. And I've known people, I've got friends in the military that, that's the kind of mindset uh, where, yeah, regardless, there's no excuse. You Once your mind thinks there is an excuse, it's the worst thing. I mean, I, I run. I don't run very far. I just do it because, you know, it keeps me fit and healthy. I don't, really, I, I don't enjoy it, but afterwards I know I feel better. And it's, it's that thought of if I don't do it, I'll feel like shit. Um, and we were on about early, you know, my wife said one day, just don't do anything today. I was that depressed. You know, <laughs> so it's it's having that mindset where you will feel better afterwards, but it's it's that initial. I suppose we talk about fitness and say keep the momentum going. You know, people struggle, don't they, going fitness, especially in the new year. People that have never maybe trained, and it's like just just keep the momentum going, even if it's a couple of times a week. But as soon as you stop that. Your voice in the head, it's like, you don't need to go to the gym. (laughs) It's fatal, isn't it? It it certainly is. And I think, you know, that's, and this is what I find really interesting is that when you apply the lessons from elite sport to participation sport or even to like business, to, to education, whatever it is, there's so many things that actually the hardest part is getting going. And if, and you know, we talk about the power of sport. If, if, you know, after let's say the Commonwealth Games this summer, an extra hundred thousand people around the world get off the sofa and do something. That's the hardest bit because once you're going, mm. actually the fear of oh it's going to be too hard, I can't do it. Actually, you go oh wow, I've just been for a five k walk or a one kilometer jog or whatever it is, and suddenly the next day you go oh I'll go again. That actually feels okay. And before you know it, you look back and you go I can't believe how far I've come. And I think that's a that's a really nice like transferable lesson out of sport. And I think when you meet people who have been athletes when they were younger to any level, <coughs> they certainly carry those traits into like later life. They have a get up and go. Um, and they kind of, their friends are always like, they're like, Oh my God, you always bring the energy and you're the gym yeah. bunny or whatever it is. And it's like, well, for them, that's the norm. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I love that. Yeah. I, I love that as well. If I meet people like that, I really love that energy. And it's like, you know, it could be snowing outside and I go, I'm going for a run. And my wife like, are you mad? But it's because I've had that mentality from people yeah. I know that just makes you think, what's, what's, you know, we're still living and breathing. It's a bit of snow. Yeah, it's a bit. Whereas some people be like, oh, it's freezing cold. You'll get yeah. wet. <laughs> but I love that mentality. You know, it's great. And you feel so good afterwards, don't you? You know, there's no excuse. Do. There is no excuses. And I think that's, you know, I, I look at like some of the most successful programs out there, like Park Run, Couch to 5K, mm. things like that. I think actually what they're doing is they're getting people over the first hurdle. And that genuinely is the hardest bit because, you know, even like if you talk about like relatively naive Olympic champions that have just got better and better and better, and suddenly they're the best in the world, they don't often turn around like in an egotistical, arrogant way, like, oh, I knew I was always going to make it or anything like that. They just go, well, I I was just got a bit better. And suddenly I was the best. And you're like, and it's really interesting when you talk about that because what it is effectively is just putting one foot in front of the other, whether that's training wise or just metaphorically in your life. And sometimes you look back and you go, I can't believe how far I've come, but actually you don't stress about the big goal. You just do today. I'm going to do a hundred meter walk. I'm going to do a 200 meter walk. And before you know it, you've gone a mile. Yeah. Now this is something I wanted to ask you because coaching, a coach interests me. And we said about parenting and coaching is so important. I'll guess someone like Adam had a coach when he was a kid. 
um, a coach has got to not only know everything about swimming, but he's got to know about how to deal with kids, how to talk to kids, you know, the mental health aspect, all that kind of thing. And a coach is so important. And I guess with elite, with elite athletes, that coach is their best friend other than family because they see them every day. You know, so years and years go through with, it, with this coach. What goes wrong with sports? And I'm just thinking of tennis. What goes wrong when an athlete comes away from a coach and chooses a different coach? Because to me, that's part of the family. That's one of your best friends. And all of a sudden, you're changing coach because you're not playing very well. But you've been with that coach for many years. Tell me, what's that all about? It's a really interesting one. And I think one of the things I've found over the years is that sport to sport is obviously very different depending on whether it's team yeah. sports, individual sports, seasonal sports, or year-round sports. So I think there's that. I think there's other aspects in it. And this is, this is probably the, the most interesting part from a coach is that people grow and develop as people. So if you take, take Adam as an example, you know, when he was like 13, 14, he was a stroppy little teenage boy, yeah. you know, by the time he was 21, he was a mature young man. And by the time he was 27, he had a one year old child. Yeah. So as if you're going to be the coach of that person, you've actually got a, you as the coach have to adapt and develop with that person. Yeah. And I, I'm obviously not that intricate with tennis. I know a few tennis coaches. And I think when you speak to a lot of coaches out there in any professional sport, there are coaches who sit at one end of the spectrum who are very holistic. They adapt, they develop, and they do what is necessary to meet the needs of the person in front of them. And then you have other people who go, this is my way of coaching. And that's yeah. fine. But I think often, especially when you look at athletes that have become parents, gone through injury journeys, potentially broke through, you know, look at like Emma Radical, like she's done an amazing job, but actually that young lady, by the time she's 21 compared to the 14 year old is going to be vastly different. And actually, and not criticizing the coach is the coach that was with her when she was 14, the same coach that she'll be with when she's 21, who knows? Yeah. Yeah. The, but then if you look at, and again, I can only see it from like Adam's insight, but actually when you look at that, what you've seen is a coach that has grown and developed with the athlete and the athletes had to grow and develop as well. There's always that kind of, yeah. you know, facing off and the, the arguments like any relationship, but actually they have grown as a twosome. And if you look at the most successful athletes out there in any sport, you know, Bolt was with that coach the whole way through his yeah. career. If you look at Michael Jordan all the way through his professional career yeah. with the same coach, you know, there are coaches who have got that ability to adapt and develop and grow with their athletes. And there are those that don't. And I'm not saying that's the sole reason. Some people like to move around the world and get, yeah. especially in certain sports, if you're in golf, you know, you're probably not going to spend too long in the UK. Um, and then in other sports, it's not as much of an issue. But I do think there's the, a huge human journey element. And occasionally that means that actually the people need to change around them. Yeah, I just think it feels a bit cheap when you hear something in the news that someone's dumped their coach and they're moving to someone else. And it's like, to me, if if I was an athlete, it'd be a friend and I'd feel a bit betrayed. But I, I don't know, I don't know. It's, it, it, it is an interesting one. I totally understand what, you, what you're saying. It's, uh, it is... Oh, it's, 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 it's hugely controversial. Yeah. The other way, from a coach's point of view, it's hugely controversial when athletes often move on, especially when they're younger because they're obviously guided by their parents. Yeah. They might be, you know, suffer from like the magpie effect where somebody's dangling something sparkly over here yeah. and it's a scholarship here or it's uh, in my sport, a uh, 50-meter pool over here or whatever it is. Yeah. And actually, they're not necessarily understanding if whether it's in the best interest of that yeah. individual human being. Um, and I think that's a real, real challenge. And I think a lot of coaches struggle with that. But I think what what happens there, certainly in my sport, is what you're dealing with is a, a mass amateurism approach. Yeah. You have not got a professional structure. Whereas if Cristiano Ronaldo decides he's going to go and have a visit with Bayern Munich, there's a channel that it goes through and it's all <laughs> yeah. done professionally, you know? Yeah, it can't yeah. be done like on the sly. Whereas yeah. I, I know people that have you know, won national titles or put swimmers on international teams and then a week later get told, oh, they're off here or they're off there. And you think, do you understand what that's done to the coach? So I see it from the other side. Yeah. From an athlete point of view, it's huge. And obviously, as I said, they grow with the, their coach as a person. But from the, the coach's point of view, who's dealing maybe with that 10 times over, 20 times over or 30 times over in a year, 
can be a real emotional stress for them. And I think that comes back for me to the amateuristic approach of a lot of sports yeah. in the UK, you know, yeah. it's just it's, how it is. Yeah, it's a good point. And I suppose one of the <laughs> other reasons I asked that question is I watched the film King Richard um, for because I'm into films and I talked with someone about the Oscars and that and watched King Richard with Will Smith who won the Oscar. We won't say anything about that. Um, but that was an interesting story. Have you seen the film yet? No, but I'm familiar with the story pretty yeah, well. So I, you know the, yeah, so the story where the coach and he, he, he said, no, I'll coach him and that kind of thing. So it, that, that sort of got me interested. Now, another thing I wanted to ask you was, and this always interests me, is mental health. Because I remember uh, a while back hearing about uh, a football, football academies where you've got young kids growing up and they get, to, they get somewhere like Chelsea say, we'll have you when they're 14. And that's it. That's their life. They are training with Chelsea. You know, they get educated with Chelsea. They're 14, 15, 16. You know, they're teenagers, 17, you know, thinking this, seeing all the stars, maybe they get a few games and then either they get injured or they get told they're not good enough. So they've lived their life as a teenager, as a child at this, at this place, you know, Chelsea. I'm just, I'm not saying they do this, but I'm just saying... And then all of a sudden, you're thrown, you're thrown out or you are left, you've left. That mental health-wise on a child, that's pretty powerful, isn't it? And, and I think that can relate to other sports. What, what's your thoughts on that? So I think sport has a lot to answer for. Hmm. Um, in the sense, when I go back to this um, professionalism structure, could you imagine being in a what I would consider a mainstream job nowadays with a company that's got more than 200 staff and that that mental health aspect is it not even appreciated at all whereas if you actually look at most governing bodies they have hundreds of staff depending on what sport it is and actually is that you know a piece of legislation that the government are saying every single kid should have mental health support now I'm biased because I'm I come from a, a world of being very aware of mental health. Yeah. Um, I've done some work linking up mental health providers with sports clubs. So I've seen firsthand yeah. the value added. Yeah. But the other thing for me that I really find baffling is for the lot, and quite rightfully so, I have to say, but quite rightfully so, we have for many years obsessed over the importance of caring for the physical health of young people, mm, like yeah. quite rightly so. And yet, mental health almost feels like the cherry on the cake as opposed to 50% of the cake. And I think it doesn't matter if a child's not overtrained, if they're mentally suffering. Yeah. Like, that, that's just as much of an issue. And I, I, I'm, I'm quite, well, I am quite outspoken on it because there is no excuse for me. Like, the resources exist out there. Yeah. The platforms exist. You know, NHSX and stuff like that with their digital platforms. You've got so many services through Mind and other platforms that exist. And, you know, I, I've got to a point now where actually I'm kind of taking up the mantle a little bit. Like I've done some work with, with Adam's team and we've got a coaching mental health and wellbeing platform for coaches. The organization that provide that, they then are rolling that out to actual clubs themselves. So it provides stuff for the athletes. And I think that shouldn't, I mean, change often comes from within, but it shouldn't. Yeah. It, that should yeah. be a piece of legislation that, you know, is at government level, all sports, all clubs if you are a governing body affiliated program yeah. you must have a mental health support platform within your programs because we all insist that the coaches are qualified and they understand physical training and technical training and tactical yeah. training and yet we go yeah we're not really sure about mental health and you're like what it's probably like the biggest thing like if you yeah. go you know think of a, uh, as a parent your kids come out of a football game did you have fun the first thing you ask them what was your experience and 90% of their experience is going to be in their head. Mm. You know, if they've had a negative experience, yeah. it might be, oh, someone said something to me or someone shouted at me or I perceive this or I'm worried about that. And yet it's not top of the agenda. So I, I'm a big advocate yeah. for more mental health support, but I do think change is on, on the way. Yeah, I think, and it's like you said, it has been in the past reactive. Uh, something's gone wrong and then they've brought in a mental, and it, it shouldn't be like that because the pressures you think these these kids, I mean, I use football as an example because it's such a big sport and, you know, you can see these superstars in these cars and having everything you wanted. It, it must be soul-destroying. Soul so a club, I keep saying Chelsea, but a, a big club like that, 
you know, they could have four or five mental health. There's no reason not to, and yeah. I don't know, maybe they do. Um, but, yeah, I do think it's, it's definitely something that's, that's uh, very important, isn't it? It's the danger as well is that ultimately sport generally to cl- the clamoring of oversubscribed people to get to yeah. you know the, the highest levels at the end of the day for every one person that pops out the top of the premier league system you're looking at maybe 5000 10000 kids that yeah. don't and whilst that's the case it's supply and demand and that sounds awful because the oh, product is poor is yeah. poor mental health but ultimately whilst a thousand people are knocking on the door every 5 minutes one or two that are worth 10, 20 million quid need to pop out the other end. And from a business point of view, that's all. And I'm yeah. not saying that's all they're worried about because that's an unfair statement. I know a lot of sports teams are doing a great job with it. But it but is what I am say- part of the equation. Yeah, it's part yeah. of the equation. And the ultimate thing for me is that then you get to a point where children feel, and they are children, you know, if they're under the age of 18, they are children, yeah. feel like they are a number. And that, when you talk about an experience, that is, that's horrendous to get to that yeah. point. Yeah. So where's, where's the future then? I mean, you're that, you're doing that many things, Kevin, what's, what's the future look like for you and your, your company and coaching and Jesus, it sounds like you, you don't have time in the day to do anything. <laughs> no. And like, I, I mean, I'm, I'm on the, uh, I'm working like an absolute nutter at the moment to try and save for a house. And as soon as I've got my house, I want to spend more time on podcasting. Um, so I do a lot around sharing quite unusual stories. So, you know, I've spent time with like the captain, the red arrows and people like that. Wow, and yeah. actually like the kind of things you learn from that, you then kind of go, right, that allows me to do so many other things better. And actually what it also does is it broadens your insights into people that have made it not, and I say to the top, not necessarily literally, but they have made it to a successful point in their careers you actually start to join the dots between a successful author, a successful fighter pilot, a successful footballer, a successful mm. swimmer, you know, whoever it is. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think that that for me is getting to the point where actually I can spend more time helping with that. And, and also the mental health thing is huge. Like for me, if, if over the next five years, I could see change to a point and the way I view sport generally is if you fix stuff for the coaches, it has a roll down effect. So, mm. you know, in my sport, there's 50, 60,000 kids. There might be one or 2000 coaches. So in terms of t- time to get to impact, it's going to be a lot quicker to get to 2000 coaches. So mm. I'm, I don't know how we get to this, but I would love to see it get to a point in sport specifically where there is legislation in place that supports coaches mental health well-being professionalization of those systems so you're not having amateur management you're not having volunteer management of and and not criticizing it but it's just a system the way it is but you get people who you know during the pandemic for example were told that we can't pay you and you're like what it's like oh well you're just you're on kind of this contract that's not really done properly and you're like what that's mad they've got a mortgage and kids like everybody else so I think that's that if I could if I could look back in five years time to this point here, what I'd like to have seen happen is legislation around mental health, coach professionalization. And then for me, selfishly, like my own personal stuff, just like doing more podcasting and and then sharing those messages, what that looks yeah. like. Well, the knows? thing is, and, and I've spoke to someone about a few people about that on the podcast before, because it's a great it's a great avenue where me and you can have a chat for an hour. We haven't got to travel, you know, because sometimes traveling is difficult and when you're running out of time. And we can highlight these things and put them on a social media. And, you know, a few people might see them, a lot of people might see them. But it's, it's, it's getting the conversation out there, which is the most important thing. Whereas years ago, you know, we'd have had to go to a conference to meet and... Good to, you know, and talk to someone else. And it's so it is, it's a great way of, of communicating, isn't it? It's, it's good. It's, it's changing things massively. And I think, you know, the way we connected, if you look on that platform there, the volume of people on there, if you just search like two search terms, like sports and something else, you'll come up with a thousand results. And actually what it's doing is that you're starting to get uh, 
almost like a village of people that are all kind of singing off the same hymn sheet. And I think that's really nice now to, you know, we were talking before we started recording about my microphone to be able to go on YouTube and go, tell me how to set up a professional microphone. Tell me (laughs) how to get the best out of it. And they go, right, if you've got this mic, you need this bit of kit and you need that and you need that and you need that. And, and all these little tips, like I'm going to a podcasting conference next month, which I need to send you actually. Yeah. It's down in London. Give me any tips. (laughs) I think it's like, 300 presenters are going to be there and like you're yeah. thinking this is going to be absolutely awesome and then there's a live podcast from fern cotton in the evening who runs one of, i guess one of the most successful podcasts in the country wow. and it's i look at stuff like that and again you know go back in the day you wouldn't have had stuff like that going on you might have had an audio conference once a year from yeah. a very niche group of people who works in the sound industry but you certainly wouldn't have had people from all these different backgrounds and walks of life and part-timers and full-timers and volunteers, all of that coming together and going, inspire me, share some information. So I think that's really exciting going forwards. And Hey, I think after the last two years of being stuck at home, I think people are like, what do you enjoy? Let's do something that excites you. Let's do, even if it's in your own time, evenings and weekends, do something that gets you up and about and actually wanting to be engaged in the world. So yeah, we shall see. Uh, I always ask my guests for the best bit of advice they've ever been given or maybe you've given to somebody. Have you thought of anything, advice? Two. Two things that stick out for me. My coach, ironically, of course, it was my coach. Um, My coach when I was younger, uh, I went off to a university program then when I was 21. So I was quite late into like senior sport, if you like. And I remember going back after the first three months, like broken, because I jumped from about five hours training a week to about 20. And um, I, I was just, I was ruined. And I saw him at Christmas and he wrote down on a little post it note, Rome wasn't built in a day. And he gave it to me and I stuck it next to my bed at university as like, just stop whining, basically. It's going to take a while. And it took me four years to get to where like my best, if you like. But I, I, that was one thing. And the second thing, and this is more like, I guess, life and philosophically, that life isn't the rehearsal. Uh, and when your time eventually comes, look back and say that I didn't waste my time and lived kind of everything to its fullest, but also true to who I am and like, it's like it's kind of quite heartbreaking but like my dad passed away three years ago and he quite sadly got cancer but went sideways but at the at the end of his time that when they stopped treatment he said to me on the phone that was the last thing he said to me when it was like this is it we're stopping treatment he said i've done everything i want to do i couldn't have asked for any more and you're like when you hear that from someone who's acknowledged the fact that they've got weeks to live you actually go crap this is it this is literally it. Like at some point, whether that's when we're 21 or whether that's when we're hundreds, that time will come. So I think that's certainly a a philosophy that I carry forwards of just do it. And we talk about like sport, inspiring people to get off their backsides and try something. Don't wait because at some point you'll look back and be like, ah, and I want to come to that time whenever it is and look back and go, that was awesome. I'm glad I tried that. And I might've failed miserably at a hundred things, but I had a go. And I think that would be, my, my closing message to everyone yeah, out there is that, just that's, have a go. Yeah. That's a great message. And it, it's something, it's like I say to every, you know, I try all these different things. I'm a creative. I'm always editing or doing something, you know. Now, whether I end up getting paid decent amounts of money for it, I don't care, but I'm trying and I enjoy it. And, and, and it's like you say, when you're on your deathbed, you want to turn around and say, oh, I enjoyed that. I went for it. I tried it. Because you're going to give them messages to your kids as well. You know, my son's moved out and I said to him, you go for it. You know, and that's, you want your kids to do that because we're in a, a, a brilliant time where, you know, technology, like we've said, gives you so many options. So there's no excuse um, and there's nothing holding you back. So that's a great, great bit of advice. And finally, I ask people for a, a favorite. It can be a book or a film or just something that people can access. Have you got one? Um, two things. Okay. Uh, number one, every week, learn something. And that does not have to be formally learn something. That could be listen to your awesome podcast. That could be read a book. That could be make a new meal. But every single week because at the end of the year you've done 52 new things and yeah. something will have stuck um and the second thing uh, that's kind of like my favorite podcast i've ever listened to but actually a message from it really stuck was ironically with my boss's coach so mel marshall she did an interview on the high performance podcast and she said every night go to bed an expert at what you do and every morning wake up a beginner 
And I was like, that, <laughs> like that open-minded attitude. And I, like, and I know her reasonably well. And I came off that listening to that interview. I was like, right, that's going to be my attitude. But actually, you, you talk to people who are like, nope, this is how I do it. And that's yeah, it. And there's nothing else out there. So it's, uh, yeah, those are my two things. So check Old out school. that podcast. What, what's it called? Uh, the High Performance Podcast. Uh, oh, I both think- Mel and Adam have been on it, and they're both really interesting interviews to listen to because Adam at the time was doing some book stuff because he's just had a, well, last year had a book come out. Uh, and then Mel is just like giving you an insight into what it takes to coach an incredible human being. And like Mel's backstory, she had some unfortunate experiences as an athlete and was adamant she was never going to let any athlete she ever then wow. worked with as a coach experience oh, that. So yeah. again, really powerful stuff. So yeah, the High oh, Performance Podcast. I'll have a listen to that. Well, look, it's been an absolute pleasure getting you on, Kevin. We got there in the end. I know we had a couple of trying to get dates together and everything, but I'm so glad you come on because you talk so much sense and we can just, you know, talk all day about it. It's a fascinating, you know, it's a fascinating industry and, it, and it's, well, an industry, it's life, isn't it? It's, it is fascinating. Yeah. So make sure you stay in touch and uh, hopefully we t- can talk again maybe in a year's time. I'll see how your podcast going. It'll start flying after you've been to this uh, this conference. <laughs> <laughs> we shall see. But uh, always learning. That's all I'm going to stick well, we, in as long as it goes up one day at a time. You'll be there. We we in notebook, writing it all down. Oh, yeah. That'll be me. <laughs> well, thank you so much for inviting me on. It's been a lot of fun and, uh, yeah, really, really enjoyed it. Great stuff. All right, and Kevin, look after yourself and I'll speak to you soon. All right, take care. Take care. So that's it. Massive thanks again to Kevin for joining me today and also to you for listening. Make sure you keep following the podcast because over the next few months, there are some more extraordinary interviews. Now, remember, we're on Facebook, which is my way of thinking podcast. Instagram is my what podcast. And please like, share, subscribe. It means a lot. Finally, if you think you'd be a good guest or you know someone would be, then email me. It's my what podcast at aol.com. Okay, until next time, God bless and take care.